Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The economy says we must always consume more. Even the slightest drop in spending leads to widespread unemployment, bankruptcy, and home foreclosure. The planet says we consume too much. In America, we burn Earth's resources at five, a rate five times faster than they can regenerate. So we can't stop shopping, and yet we must. This is the consumer dilemma. In his latest book, Addressing the Paradox Head-On, journalist J.B. McKinnon asks, what would really happen if we simply stopped shopping? Is there a way to reduce our consumption to earth-saving levels without triggering an economic collapse? The latest book is The Day the World Stops Shopping, How Ending Consumerism Saves the Environment and Ourselves. J.B. McKinnon is an award-winning journalist whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, National Geographic, and The Atlantic, as well as Best American Science and Nature Writing Anthologies. He's also the author of four books of nonfiction, including the best-selling Plenty, widely recognized as a catalyst for the local foods movement. He lives in Vancouver, Canada. J.B. McKinnon joins us for the hour here on Access Utah. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Well, let me start with uh, the uh, planet side of this paradox. Um, Let me read this. This really struck me. This is just one facet of this. Uh, You see, countertops are bigger, beds are bigger, closets have doubled in size, the technosphere, everything we build and make, our stuff, is now estimated to outweigh all living things on Earth. (laughs) That's pretty stark. Uh, Maybe you could outline for us uh, in in brief uh, how all this stuff, our consumerism, uh, harms the planet. Sure. I mean, it's it's pretty straightforward if we think about it. Everything that we make and use has to be uh, the resources to produce that have to be extracted from the land and sea. Uh, Usually it involves quite a lot of energy and most of that energy is still being drawn from fossil fuel sources, which of course has a tremendous impact on the climate. Um, And then once we're finished with those things, we, we have to dispose of them. So we have, you know, as most of us know, incredible amounts of waste uh, coming out of the consumer uh, society and you add it up and really as an environmental journalist has been writing about these subjects for quite a long time I started to realize it didn't really matter what environmental problem I took a look at if I took a close look at the root causes it was it was our consumption uh, so I mean, we have uh, you know we're trying to green our consumption aren't we so won't that work we are. We're in the process of trying to wave away the environmental consequences of our consumption by shifting to cleaner energy sources and green technologies, things like this. It doesn't seem to be working. I mean, if we look just at the climate alone um, as maybe the, the best example, over the last 20 years, we've we've put a ton of energy into green technologies, into a shift towards uh, renewables, We've made that the focus of how we're approaching climate change, and we have not yet, in even a single year, achieved a, an absolute reduction in global carbon emissions, uh, not even for a single year. And yet, each time we have a recession, or as we saw most recently in the pandemic, any situation where consumption itself actually drops, when we consume less, we see immediate reductions in global global uh, carbon emissions. So we know that reducing consumption is incredibly effective at reducing our environmental impact, and yet we never really examine that as a possible solution or even as a partial solution. Well, to underline uh, the fact that this is you, you, you just uh, can't plan this, right? You uh, you embarked upon this thought experiment. Uh, you know, studying big box stores in America, hunter-gatherers in Namibia, what Ecuador, we'll, we'll talk about some of this, um, consulting with economists, etc. But then we had the pandemic, and and and, and we had real-world uh, tests of some of the things you were talking about. That must have been spectacular. I mean, it's, it's a horrible thing to happen, but uh, just to see this in real time. Yeah, I mean, it was absolutely fascinating. The timing was was pretty shocking in the sense that I had one more research trip I wanted to do to this book, and it was to China. And uh, so in January and February 2020, you know, I still was <laughs> I was still making plans to 
to fly over to China. Uh, obviously, that trip never happened. But what I got instead was uh, yes, this opportunity um, to to actually watch what happens if we if we abruptly reduce consumer spending because as people were locked out of the consumer economy uh you know the, the world in a sense really did stop shopping in a way that that reflected uh what had just been a thought experiment for me up to that point uh there were of course some critical differences i mean in my thought experiment people didn't have to lock themselves away from each other uh but in many other ways it was uh it was a real opportunity to see whether the ideas I had developed uh, were were the right ones. So, what did we find? That was there a reduction in uh, you know carbon emissions? Was there a benefit to the to the planet? Oh, absolutely! I mean, there was the sharpest reduction in carbon emissions ever recorded in history. So, again, really driving home that idea that reducing consumption rather than just trying to green it all away uh, is is the most effective tool we have, uh, but there are other things too that you know many of your listeners will remember how skies cleared over many of the cities around the world, and for me, the most dramatic of those were cities in Asia that produce a lot of the consumer goods that we use, and those are places that had some of the worst air quality on the planet uh, up until the pandemic, and suddenly people were enjoying blue skies and breathable air in, in a lot of those places. We saw as mass tourism, which, of course, is a part of consumer culture, as mass tourism receded around the world, we saw, and again, people will remember these viral videos of you know, animals retaking uh, places where, where uh, the, the, the human intensity of usage had, had receded somewhat. And the one that I remember most starkly in my own mind is uh, a beach in Mexico uh, that had normally would be covered with with tourists and sunbathers and suddenly the sunbathers and the swimmers and even the surfers in a sense were uh, American crocodiles that had come out of <laughs> the local mangrove swamp and taken over the beach yeah yeah just incredible I remember a lot of uh, yeah, a lot of pictures like that um, so maybe we can make a transition now to talking about the economy. And uh, again, I want to use an example from the pandemic. I think we all remember the debates that were on television uh, fairly early in the pandemic, talking about, okay, what are acceptable levels of death in order to not lock down or shut down the economy? Uh, that, that seems mm-hmm. that seemed to be put in very bold relief, uh, some of the things you're talking about here that... Uh, that we're, you know, we're kind of trapped on this treadmill in some ways with, with the economy. That's right. And yeah, this is the other side of that consumer dilemma that, that, sure, you know, reducing consumption is clearly very, very effective in terms of uh, relieving some of the pressure we're putting on the planet. But when, when we do that, you know, when we do suddenly cut back on our consumer spending we we see the we see the economic consequences very clearly you know, shuttered businesses and and uh, a lot of people losing their jobs and livelihoods part of the reason for that is that we've never attempted to reduce consumption in a planned manner so whenever we have uh, whenever this has happened whenever we've seen a sudden drop in consumer spending it's happening because a disaster is playing out, a, you know, a, a, a recession or depression, uh, world wars in the past, the pandemic, these things just uh, come upon us, and and uh, the reduction in consumption is just part of the of the overall disaster that's playing out. So the question for me was, you know, if we approach this in a different way, if we tried to make uh, a planned movement towards reducing consumption in the same way that we've made a planned move towards trying to green consumption, could we reap some benefits from that? And I think we can. Mm. I want to talk a little bit more about this, uh, the, the economy side. Um, you uh, you remind us that after 9-11, uh, President George W. Bush essentially uh, encouraged us to go shopping. You point out that he never uttered those words, but essentially that was his message, right? Yeah, I mean, he did actually use those words uh, just ahead of the the Great Recession. Um, But, yeah, even at the time of 9-11, he 
he he said in so many words. <laughs> Certainly, he was understood as having said, uh, "Folks, get back to the malls." Uh, so you, I uh, hadn't known this. You point out that Adam Smith, of course, the Scottish economist, famously you know tied to capitalism. Uh, he was a bit queasy about uh, rampant consumerism. You point out that that we have had there's been a strain of thought that uh, we've been uncomfortable with consumerism, uh, you know, over history, but that uh, some things have seemed to change with that in in the last maybe I don't know a couple of decades. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason that people remember George W. Bush saying, "Go, you know, get back to shopping," in effect after nine eleven. I think the people remember that so clearly is that we really hadn't had world leaders, you know, telling us um, that we, that the whole society was as dependent on consumerism as it actually has come to be. So that was a moment I think when people realized, you know, it's not really, it's no longer even really a choice whether or not I consume. If I want to contribute to the health of society, I have to do it. I have to. Not only do I have to consume. But I need to try to consume more and more every year so that I can drive uh, the growth that seems to be necessary to keep a consumer-driven economy up and running. And I think, I mean, that, that is uh, it's a shocking idea, I think, that, uh, that we've reached a point where, uh, you know, it's not, we're, not, we're not really free to choose anymore. If we want to be responsible citizens, we have to open up our wallets and, and get spending. Yeah, I just want to read this. You say, by the time of the pandemic, where we had gotten to, uh, I'll just quote this, by then, the pandemic, the idea that shopping was not just a pastime or a distraction, but the only thing standing between us and the fall of civilization was perfectly ordinary to our ears. And, and uh, yeah, I agree, that's <laughs> just kind of become the consensus, right? <laughs> yeah, and and it really hadn't been a consensus up to that point. I mean, it was quite conventional, as you know, as, as you pointed out. Um, economists like Adam Smith and uh, uh, Keynes and, you know, famous names from economy, they had mixed feelings about consumption and its impacts and whether there were good, you know, forms of consumption that were good and forms of consumption that were bad. Uh, All of these things were really questions that were alive in society for for a very long time. And then really, you know, I feel like that there was a turning point that can be marked after 9-11 when it just became routine for world leaders, if, they, if there was any kind of economic slowdown, they'd say, folks, you know, please get back out there and shop. And uh, politicians of all parties and all stripes have participated in that. I think we've, you know, we really haven't had a broad public conversation about consumption, consumerism, and its impacts since the 1990s. Hmm. Uh, so I want to go to break soon, and we'll do, we'll get jump into uh, some of the specifics and uh, the way your thought experiment played out, um, and uh, you know uh, some specifics here. But you do write that if we slow our consumption, it plainly does have serious consequences. I mean, we've seen this this in the pandemic, but as you said earlier, I suppose your point would be um, usually. Almost always, when we've seriously slowed consumption, it, it's it's not been planned, right? It's been a disaster of some kind. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So it's always just come at us, and we've never tried to we've never tried to build a lower consuming society. We just occasionally end up with one because of uh, you know serious some kind of serious circumstances that are playing out, and that's what I think. You know, that that's an opportunity to to think about it a bit differently. Usually, we just sit out these disasters and wait for people to be ready to consume again. But you know, what if we didn't? What if we uh, what if we actively tried to lower consumption? Well, let's jump into that thought experiment, which uh, comprises the book. The book is uh, after the break. The the book is the day the world stops shopping: how ending consumerism saves the environment and ourselves. We're talking with journalist. J.B. McKinnon, who's the author of the book. We'll have more following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from listeners like you. And Auto Evolution, owned and operated by Ron Stagg, keeping Cache Valley automobiles on the road for more than 20 years with service, repair, and maintenance. Located at 347 West Airport Road in North Logan. Information is available by calling 435-753-2521. 
and support comes from Les Olson Company. Navigating the complexities of today's technology and finding the right solutions for businesses. Offering copier, printer, and scanner sales and service statewide with technical support and outsourced IT services. Information at lesolson.com. The Moth is true stories told live without notes. Join us at the Ellen Eccles Theater in Logan on Thursday, October 21st for the Moth main stage. Masks will be required and proof of vaccination or negative test results to enter. Just like the Moth Radio Hour, this live show will revolve around a theme, with storytellers exploring it often in unexpected ways. Since each story is true and every voice authentic, the show dances between documentary and theater. Tickets are available now. Find a link at upr.org, and we hope we'll see you there. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We can't stop shopping, and yet we must. This is the consumer dilemma. The economy says we must always consume more. The planet says we consume too much. And in his new book, journalist J.B. McKinnon asked, what would really happen if we simply stopped shopping? Is there a way to reduce our consumption to earth-saving levels without triggering economic collapse? The book is called The Day the World Stops Shopping. The author is J.B. McKinnon. He's with us for the hour here. Um, So J.B. McKinnon... Uh, you make a distinction here. You say sometimes we say we're going to do the shopping. Other times we say let's go shopping. What's the difference? <laughs> yeah, the difference there is uh, uh, clearly <clears throat> there are some kinds of consumption that are really essential. We have to we, we go out and buy the groceries. We go up and pick out essentials. And I think when we do that, we often say, you know, uh, I'm going shopping. You'll know, have to go do the shopping. But uh, when we say let's go shopping, it means we're heading out to, to buy luxuries, we're heading out to do shopping as a recreational activity. Um, it's the kind of shopping that uh, is adding, um, it's adding things that might be of importance to our life but aren't absolutely essential to our quality of life. So for purposes of your thought experiment, you chose a level of 25%. Global consumer spending uh, on the day the the world stops shopping, drops by twenty five percent. How did you come to that number? Well, I, really, I spoke to various experts, and I wanted to find a number that seemed uh, like it would be a deep enough reduction in consumption that I'd be able to see very starkly how that would change society, but without just uh, plummeting us into the stone ages people often say <laughs> will happen if uh, if we reduce consumption too much but it also turned out um, it turned out to reflect uh, some interesting things for example a lot of if you look at the gap between people who are doing the most consumption and people who are doing something closer to a sustainable and you know an environmentally sustainable level of consumption in a country like the United States uh, there's about a 25% difference. And so it's, uh, it's, it is interesting, though, because it was a figure that when I approached some people and said, I'm running this thought experiment uh, where I'm reducing consumption by 25%, some people were like, that's too crazy for me to even talk about. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to talk to you for your book. And then the pandemic struck, and we saw in, in quite a few countries brief periods where consumption dropped by 20, 25, even 30%. So that, that was the actual figure for, for some areas during the pandemic. So we, we actually saw it, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, tell me about, you, you went to a few places here for, for, the, for the book. Uh, tell me about, uh, about some of these places, which I guess can be, can be illustrations. Yeah, I mean, one one place I went to was uh, Namibia, where I visited with indigenous uh, people living in the Kalahari Desert, middle of the Kalahari Desert, and uh, there's a there's a culture there where people have they've had minimal possessions uh, throughout their history, and uh, that culture's history is about 150,000 years. Uh, old at this point. So what I wanted to explore there was this question. I mean, I often have people saying to me, isn't this just wired into us? Aren't we just, you know, bred, bred and, you know, bred and born consumers genetically hardwired to shop? And uh, these folks in Namibia show that that's not the case. I mean, they're, 
they're humans in every way uh, that we are, and yet culturally they've taken a very different path, very few possessions, and because of that, uh, they they don't have to work very hard to, to meet their basic needs. Um, since their needs are basic, they you know they they put in considerably less hours of actual labor um, to make their way in the world than we do in in uh, nations like the United States or Canada where where I am, and uh, and then they really invest a lot of time in leisure, and uh, you know so they've taken in many ways quite a distinct path from we have, and and I think there's standing proof that uh, there's nothing ordained about about becoming consumers and becoming shoppers. Another place I visited was Ecuador because, as you mentioned in the introduction, people often point out that if everyone on Earth lived like the average American, we would need five planet Earths worth of resources to sustain that lifestyle for everybody on the planet. Um, but that got me thinking that there must be places on the planet where if you lived like the, if we all lived like the person in country X, Y, or Z, then, uh, then we'd be able to get by on the planet we have. And Ecuador turns out to be one of those countries. Uh, at the time that I went, it was considered to be consuming at a globally sustainable level in that sense. And yet the United Nations rates it as a highly developed nation. So it's a country where they they have much they are much more efficiently uh, turning resources and energy use into quality of life. Uh, so they're they're consuming a lot less, but they're still living at quite a high standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned with the uh, you know the the section on uh, Namibia, uh, the, the phrase that we sometimes use: uh, affluence without abundance. You, you know, reduce your wants, um, th- then you know you can you can live quote unquote richly without having much. Yeah, phrase, another phrase that's often applied to them is "few needs easily met." So, uh, since they have not a lot of wants and needs, uh, they they're able to meet those fairly easily off the landscape that they live on. And people in that culture, even though they are in contact with the wider world and are certainly well aware of uh, how the rest of us live, uh, people there continue to to live at a much lower level of possessions than we do over here. I met a, I met a guy who'd you know, been out and seen the world a little bit, but returned to the Kalahari Desert to live in a manner that was pretty traditional uh, in terms of how his ancestors lived. That was his his preference of a way to live, and I think it 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 probably has to do with this idea that you know if you can put aside this desire for possessions to that extent, then uh, you know he can make do on on uh, not a lot of work and work that he enjoys, things like hunting and you know crafting things. Um, really kind of interesting to reflect on coming from where where we do, but you also see this in people like. For example, in the United States, people who practice uh, simpler ways of living often report the same effect. They say, "Well, you know, I don't, I don't need to earn as much money to live the life that I do, and that means that I can choose to either work fewer hours, or uh, um, I can be more selective about the kind of work I do. You know, if I, I don't have to take a bad job, I can." Um, work on something that I care about, um, even if it means that I earn less, because I don't have those same I don't have the same need to earn money to buy things. There are social pressures, though, aren't there? Uh, I guess you do have to ignore those if you want to live that lifestyle, right? Because because collectively, it's you know work harder, do more, I guess get more, and save the economy kind of thing is is a drumbeat in the back background these days too. Yeah, definitely. When I spoke to people who live uh, more live more simply in America they they do feel like outcasts that's uh, they feel like they are outsiders to the culture that they live in and that's often what they describe as the hardest part of of the lifestyle that they choose so there there's certainly none of them were saying to me you know my life is difficult because I've had to give up so many things and you know it's uh, uh, living simply is is uh, is just unpleasant an unpleasant hardship. Nobody reported it in that way. They would just say, 
I get I get lonely sometimes. I feel like I'm uh, excluded uh, from the culture around me because they live by a different set of values. If you just joined us, we're talking with journalist J.B. McKinnon. His latest book uh, is The Day the World Stops Shopping. The subtitle is How Ending Consumerism Saves the Environment and Ourselves. It's an interesting thought experiment. Uh, J.B. McKinnon set this for himself and then uh, went about uh, you know, researching this. What would really happen if we simply stopped shopping? Is there a way to reduce our consumption to earth-saving levels without triggering economic collapse? And uh, so the level that uh, J.B. McKinnon set was 25%. What if we collectively uh, you know, reduced our consuming by 25%? Um, so I want to talk about... Uh, you have a section called Collapse. And, and so I think you, you stipulate in your thought experiment, okay, yeah, there would be a collapse, but, but I suppose you're saying that uh, this could be controlled if we, were, if we did it the right way. Yeah, I mean, I think the point that I'd want to make here is that uh, one thing I learned from this is that you don't want to stop consuming at 25% overnight. It's just not the right way to get there. Um, you know, in the book, it plays out a bit like a disaster movie, and I hope that's entertaining for readers. Uh, but yeah, if we, all, if we all suddenly reduced our consumption by the degree that I talk about in my, thought, in my thought experiment, then you have a situation that's very difficult to control. Uh, that said, we can move in that direction gradually, and there are concrete things that we can do that would help create a society that consumes less. By the way, parenthetically, you point out in the book that um, this focus on growth is is only recent, right? Focus on extreme growth or, or extreme focus on growth, maybe you could put it that way, that over centuries, uh, the growth was essentially due to population growth, right? There, there was essentially mm-hmm. no, you know... Uh, no accelerated growth in in the economy. That's right, and I mean it's it's interesting. There's still large parts of the economy that that don't really um, grow or aren't as focused on growth. And family-owned businesses are often an example of that. If you think about uh, your own community, you're going to have your dentists' offices and doctors' offices and uh, family-owned restaurants, and maybe a guy who fixes your shoes and a bar who you know serves a drink and. Uh, nobody expects these businesses to to grow every year. Uh, they they work if they make a profit, so that they can, you know, the the business owner and the employees are able to to earn some income. Um, but there's, you know, they're they're actually a great model for how a uh, a, a lower or slower consuming culture might function. Uh, we might rely less on these giant corporations with their urgent need to grow in order to pay dividends to shareholders and uh, and focus more on these, uh, not necessarily smaller, but uh, more uh, sustainable, steady-state kind of businesses that are already a very large part of our economies. You talk, I'm uh, reading from Chapter 6, uh, titled, The End of Growth is Not the End of Economics. Um, and you you uh, talked to Peter Victor, an economist. Um, so I want to have you uh, tell me about him and and uh, the numbers that he uh, crunches and crunched for you. Um, you say mm-hmm. his, his goal has been to answer a question, is it possible to have an economy that grows very little or does not grow at all, or even shrinks, and still have a liberal system? Of course, that's what you want in your thought experience, right? experiment, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I was interested, uh, you say, his dark muse is former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Uh, How so? Well, Margaret Thatcher was famous for uh, a phrase that was eventually abbreviated to the term TINA, and that stood for, there is no alternative. So this was kind of her response to to anybody who suggested that, uh, anybody who questioned uh, growth-oriented consumer capitalism. She just said, there is no alternative. And Peter Victor, as an economist, uh, he's British-born, lives in Canada, uh, he found that uh, disturbing. He thought, well, you know, surely, surely we have some some more say in the matter than that. So he built a, a effectively he's built a scale model of the Canadian economy on uh, on his computer. And at this point, he's 
refined it so much that you can he can dial up or dial down just about any aspect of the economy and see how that plays out in the rest of the economy. Uh, so I went to him and said, can we, can we stop shopping in, the, in your model of the Canadian economy and see what happens? And, uh, and that's exactly what we did. So we, uh, we started with, uh, with a very big drop, like the one that my thought experiment is built around. And, uh, and it was uncontrollable. You know, it was too much. It cracked the Canadian economy. At one point, Peter turned to me and said, I think you're killing capitalism. <laughs> and, uh, but then he said, let's do this another way. Let's slow down the economy, uh, not by, say, 25%, but by, uh, or 50%, but by 4%, and uh, see if we can manage that. And he was able to do so. Uh, and he did it by doing things like shortening the workday so that the amount of work that is available is spread between more people. And by doing that, he managed to keep more or less the same number of people employed in this lower-consuming economy. Um, he redistributed wealth, because, again, if you have a smaller economy that's producing less income, then it becomes even more important that that income uh, be spread a little more fairly in order to you know, keep everybody above above water financially. And he was able to do that. So, uh, you know, he, he poured some more investment into the green economy. Uh, that's another step he took because then you can generate jobs and so on without, uh, without the same number of, of uh, environmental impacts. So he, uh, yeah, he, he was able with a 4% reduction to, you know, to have an economy that in many ways resembles the one we know today but consumes dramatically less and certainly over time would consume radically fewer resources than we do today. And I think his point is that that's just a starting point. You know, we, we could, we could get to four, uh, maybe from there we can get to six and, uh, and see where we end up. So the, uh, you know, this uh, phrase uh, made popular by Margaret Thatcher, there is no alternative, no alternative to the perpetually growing economy. The difficulty here, in opposition to your thought experiment, is that this has become received wisdom, hasn't it? Everybody sort of agrees there is no alternative. Uh, so I guess under your to, to, to get people to do this, uh, there'd have to be a changing of minds, right? Yeah, I mean, we are definitely... I, another thing I say in the book is that we've been talking too simply about living simply. Uh, I think we hear a lot about the decluttering movement. There's, you know, lots of little uh, subcultures that are talking about living more simply. But I think we've been ignoring, you know, even on that side of the equation, we've been ignoring the fact that if we, if enough of us choose to live more simply, then it creates these tremendous economic challenges. So I think the more sensible path is, uh, I mean, there's, there's, I certainly wouldn't discourage anybody from living more simply. There's lots of good reasons to do so. It can help people control their debt. Uh, it can allow them, it can give them more time to invest in in uh, their friends and family, people they care about, uh, can give them more leisure time. There's all kinds of good reasons to do it. But as a society, if we want to start working towards reducing consumption, uh, we need to do that in a in a more thoughtful and planned manner. And uh, so these controls that uh, you know the the economist you talked to was was controlling. You, you point out, and he points out that um, you know it's not so far fetched to think that this could be done. Governments have a, a lot of controls over the economy, right? Yeah, I mean we saw governments do this uh, during the pandemic, right? I mean they they didn't directly reduce working hours, but they certainly did. Um, say, well, a bunch of people are shut out of work and a smaller number of people are still able to work, so we're going to redistribute some of the wealth in the economy to the people who are shut out of work. So, I mean, that's a, precisely the kind of tool, although it was used pretty bluntly in the pandemic, um, that's exactly the kind of tool that can be used in a society that, uh, that slows its economy down. And, you know, on the other side of the coin of this is that we often have problems with you hear economists talking about the, the economy becoming too exuberant at times. Um, so sometimes 
growth is actually, you know, it's a it's a problem, and sometimes um, overconsumption creates dangers, even not only for the planet but within the economy itself. Um, so there there may be an opportunity here to to find a a wiser kind of middle path <laughs> that uh, that allows us to reduce um, consumption and can give us back some of the things we've lost over time, like like uh, like a little bit more free time and leisure time in our lives. We mentioned earlier in the program that you embarked on this thought experiment, and then, in at least in part, it came true. Uh, the pandemic hit. Um, you, you write about this uh, in the book. I want to read this. Uh, this is on page 125. Uh, you say, you know, after the pandemic has hit, when I surveyed my own network of contacts at the height of the global lockdowns, their experiences reflected those that were widely observed. Some, of course, were immersed in hardships of death, illness, anxiety, joblessness, uh, or loss of a business. Yet many others, often even facing adversity, were moving swiftly toward a deeper-than-usual engagement with life. So I wonder if you tell me about, you know, a couple of a couple of those books. You do mention a, a father in the heart of the city of two million people finally had the time he always wanted to spend with his young daughters. Yeah, I mean, I th- I'm sure, you know, many people will, will remember similar stories. Uh, people, you know, I mean, another person I spoke to was was talking about how they were they were enjoying the spring more than they more than they ever had and probably more than they expected they ever would again they were you know, had the time to go out and uh, take walks in the city and see the birds and you know uh, really enjoy the pleasures of that um, people were quite famously i mean people one of the first things people did even though uh, they had to do it by phone and by zoom people not only reached out to, you know, make contact with the important folks in their social network, but quite famously reached beyond that. There was this widespread phenomenon of people reaching out to old friends that they hadn't seen for a long time or family members that they hadn't spent enough time with and suddenly had the time to do that. Um, This was one of the shifts that was predicted by the thought experiment because I was talking to psychologists uh, just ahead of the pandemic, and and they had been explaining how well people who turn their turn away from materialism and turn away from consumerism and that set of values end up heading towards a different set of values, and it's what uh, psychologists call intrinsic values, and it's called that because they're the kinds of things that are just inherently satisfying to us, and that is things like building strong relationships with people you care about, spending time in the natural world, taking care of your physical health, mastering new skills. Um, There's sort of a set of values like that. Um, And I said, well, how long, if people turn away from consumerism, how long would it take them to start to engage with that other set of values? The psychologist said, well, we don't know. You know, we don't have enough research on that. Then the pandemic struck, and we saw that people made that transition very quickly. You know, people uh, people were doing exactly those kinds of things, and and they were doing it in a matter of a, a few weeks. Of course, the pandemic now has lasted, uh, you know, a year and a half, depressingly so. Um, are mm. we are we seeing that? Uh, I don't know what the uh, there were studies. Uh, are we seeing that people are, or at least significant numbers of people are holding to some of these changes? Well, uh, there there aren't studies that I've seen, but I think there are some indications. But one of the things that that psychologists would predict people would do in this kind of a values shift that might come out of uh, a turning away from a consumer culture is you'd see a lot more people engaging with issues that are bigger than themselves. So focusing less on themselves and focusing more on uh, what other people's struggles might be and those sorts of things. So when we saw this unparalleled increase in interest in the Black Lives Matter movement, for example. I mean, it was a pretty strange time for that sudden interest in that uh, movement to occur in the middle of a pandemic. Um, you know, it, the, the things that prompted the surge in interest were things that had happened many times before. <clears throat> you know, there's a, a question about whether or not there was this pandemic effect of pushing people towards social movements and environmental movements and things like this. And I think there's, there's, you know, certainly some 
pretty strong circumstantial evidence that that's the case. I think you're also seeing it in the resistance to returning to work, uh, quite frankly. There's you know, quite a bit of concern that people, even people, uh, that people are even enduring economic hardship rather than uh, get back to jobs that don't pay that well, that aren't very satisfying. Um, I think people have realized, well, you know, I can, I can live with less and, and I'm, you know, I, I don't want to get back to that, that, uh, that former routine. So certainly just at an anecdotal level, I'm, people are definitely returning to consumption and consumerism. Um, that's what we know best. But I think a lot of people are doing that with mixed feelings. Let's take another break. Uh, we'll uh, come back, of course, to the last segment with uh, journalist J.B. McKinnon. His latest book is The Day the World Stops Shopping, How Ending Consumerism Saves the Environment and Ourselves. Um, and uh, there's a very interesting chapter under the section Adaptation. I want to get to this uh, after the break. If we're no longer consumers, what are we instead? You made a bit of a reference to that uh, just there. So we'll uh, talk more about that and uh, many other things uh, when we come back. J.B. McKinnon, The Day the World Stops Shopping, after the break. Hello, listeners. I'm Shireen Gorbani, Salt Lake County Councilwoman. Join us for both sides of the aisle. This is a weekly debate over politics, policy, and big issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices on the right, in the center, and on the left. That's me. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing the residents of this state. We prove that you can still put Republicans and Democrats in a small room and have meaningful dialogue. Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. In majority white neighborhoods of L.A., federal loans help businesses stay afloat when the pandemic hit. The PBP loans have real they, they saved us. But just a few miles away, many black business owners say they were forgotten. Yeah, we were left behind. We were left behind. How the PPP program failed communities of color. On the next Reveal. Monday at 11 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access U-Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with J.B. McKinnon. He's author of the new book, The Day the World Stops Shopping. And uh, it's a thought experiment. What would really happen if we simply stopped shopping? Is there a way to reduce our consumption to earth-saving levels without triggering economic uh, collapse? So I made reference to uh, Chapter 2 in the section Adaptation. I, I do want to, uh, to, to get this in, in the section Collapse before we move on, J.B. McKinnon. An intriguing uh, chapter title, Can Advertising Turn into the Opposite of Itself? Advertising, marketing is a big factor in consumerism, right? So it can it be can it be turned on itself? <laughs> um, well, I think that is a that is a big question. But one thing that is very clear is that in countries where there's lower consumption, there's less advertising, and this can be pretty striking. I mean, when I was in Ecuador, uh, I, I didn't really notice at the time that. I was seeing so many fewer ads, but then I flew back through the Dallas-Fort Worth airport, and when I got off my airplane in the United States, I was, you know, I was overwhelmed with the sense of how how constantly uh, we're bombarded with advertisements. So, absolutely, it plays a huge role in driving over consumerism, and the question becomes, well, you know, what? what you know, is there a way that advertising can do a different kind of work? And I guess we see it in things like uh, a famous advertisement run by the Patagonia Outdoor Gear Company. Uh, back in 2012, they ran a full-page ad in the New York Times that said, don't buy this jacket, and uh, went on to say why you shouldn't. It said, here are the ecological consequences of buying this jacket, so think twice. Do you really need it? And the remarkable thing, of course, is that not only did sales of that jacket not decline, but Patagonia sales increased. And Patagonia continues to use this kind of uh, what I call de-consumer marketing and continues to grow as a company, which seems like it could just be straight hypocrisy. <laughs> but uh, I think the point they make, and I think it's actually credible, is that 
what they have found is a large market of people who don't want to be buying so many things and have serious concerns about consumerism and its impacts. So it turns out there is a there is a market of people that we might call de-consumers uh, that are really attracted to this idea. And uh, when they buy things, they will buy them from companies that promote responsible consumption. Another, uh, you very helpfully for me, uh, uh, titled your chapters with questions. So I was just making reference to these. Um, uh, chapter 9, we, we adapt, this is not a question, but uh, a statement. We adapt to not shopping more quickly than you think. Uh, and, you know, you have some examples. Uh, but but you, uh, I think we imagine if we stop shopping, maybe it's going to be more traumatic. That's what we know, right? But you're, you're saying we adapt to it uh, quicker than we might think. Yeah, I mean, we've certainly seen that throughout history. You do have these periods where people are forced to reduce their consumption. Um, and they're often looked back, those periods of time are often looked back on nostalgically. I mean, even World War II, right? There are lots of stories from countries like the United Kingdom where people were living pretty bare-bones uh, material lives and who remember that fondly because it was a time when there was a lot of, there was a real sense of community solidarity uh, there was a real sense of purpose in people's lives, and uh, and there was an e- there was a an evening out of social status. So people weren't as concerned with things like class and social status and how much stuff they have compared to their neighbors, um, because everybody was kind of in the same boat. So time and time again, we've seen that people can can make this shift. Uh, I remember a friend of mine writing to me during the pandemic saying, you know, uh, you don't really notice it when it's gone. You don't really notice that you that you haven't bought anything for two weeks, <laughs> you know, um, and you don't really miss those things. I want to have you uh, tell me the story in brief of uh, Zoe Hillel, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. This is in the chapter, If We're No Longer Consumers, What Are We Instead? Uh, she has agoraphobia. Mm-hmm. Um, and she knows there's a new shop opening. She, she lives in uh, Dagenham um, in the UK. Uh, t- tell me about this uh, in brief. Yeah, so Dagenham is, uh, is a borough outside of the city of London. And it's one of the, in fact, is the poorest uh, borough in London. Zoe Hillel is a resident there who, as you say, has agoraphobia. So she, she was struggling uh, even to spend time walking down the sidewalk with people around, let alone going into shops. But one day she saw a shop near her home uh, that was being set up to open, and she had made a goal of it to uh, to get over there and get in that shop when it opened. The shop turned out to be part of a big experiment in what's called participatory culture, so giving people an alternative to just buying things um, by giving them opportunities to participate in things like all kinds of opportunities for learning, getting together with your neighbors, um, participating in community potluck dinners, uh, helping clean up or plant trees in your community, all these kinds of things. It opened up and Zoe went from, you know, somebody who felt really isolated and excluded in her community to somebody who, when I visited, was was going to the this participatory culture shop uh, every single day. And... Uh, had really come out of her shell as an agoraphobic. And that was, I mean, Dagenham as a whole was a place where I really realized that, you know, if you are, if you don't have the means uh, to participate in consumption, then you're kind of shut out of our society. And uh, it was really striking to see how many people in Dagenham were having their lives transformed by this opportunity to participate and interact. Just to have a couple of minutes left, I want to have you, before we close, uh, treat briefly, uh, you have a chapter on uh, shopping in cyberspace, and that it, more and more of us are experiencing the digital shopping, right? Um, how does, does this, does your thought experiment play out similar way in, in that sphere? Yeah, I mean, there's this theory kicking around that maybe, maybe we could reduce consumption by consuming in digital space, not by like buying things to have them sent to your house, but by, but by actually owning digital goods. Say you could put on a pair of uh, 
digital glasses, you know, kind of Google Glass, Apple Glass, or whatever those things were, um, uh, so that if people came over to your home, maybe they would just see a, you know, a digital sculpture or a digital uh, digital artwork or things like that on your wall. Um, that you know, there's this idea that maybe we could just consume virtual goods or consume in virtual reality, and that would get us our consumption kicks um, at a much lower impact. And uh, it, I don't think that's the case. I think what we're seeing is that digital consumption is following exactly the same paths as material com- consumption. We're doing more and more of it every year. It's becoming more intensive in terms of the consumption of resources and energy rather than less intensive. And, um, and so much of it is trivial. I mean, we, I think every one of us, certainly myself included, w- would have to admit that there, is, there are a lot of things I do online that aren't adding anything meaningful to my quality of life uh, that I could give up. And not only you know, would my life not be worse, it might be better. Uh, we just have about a minute left. Um, I guess final question is, is getting you to a takeaway, what would you uh, like people most to take away from the book? What, what's one thing that, uh, you know, that listeners can do to, to kind of get us on this path that oh. you, you would like us to? I'll, I'll, I'll try and squeeze in two real quick, because the first is that I just think we need to start talking about consumption and consumerism and its impacts again. As I said, it's been about 30 years since there was a broad public conversation about this. And I think we're at the stage right now where the most important thing we can be doing is just starting to talk about this again. Um, The second thing I'd point out is that maybe the takeaway for me from working on this book was to realize that we should stop thinking about reducing consumption as being all about what we give up and focus more on what we stand to gain. And I think what we stand to gain is a lot. You know, uh, more time to invest in values that are more satisfying to us, uh, more free time in general, uh, maybe a fairer society, um, and certainly uh, a much healthier planetary environment. I mean, these are really these are really big uh, gains that we can make in our quality of life for ourselves and our societies. And we can get there quickest by finding ways to reduce consumption. The book is The Day the World Stops Shopping. Subtitle is How Ending Consumerism Saves the Environment and Ourselves. And the author is J.B. McKinnon. He's joined us for the hour here on Access Utah. J.B. McKinnon, thank you so much for spending the hour with us. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. On the next edition of the Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll hear some intriguing collaborations that cross political, ethnic, and religious boundaries to foster peace and understanding between cultures. You'll hear Sting with Italian singer Zucchero, Willie Nelson with Toots and the Maytals, and the Edan Reichel Project. I'm Rosalie Howard. And I'm Dan Storper. Join us for One World, Many Cultures, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide member-supported service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSK Vernal, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSL Richfield, KUSR Logan, and KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org or on the UPR app.